Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Behold the word of the Lord, you may be seated. day. We thank you for this Lord's day as we get to celebrate again your resurrection. Lord, we pray now that as we open your word that you would bless the preaching of your word. Lord, may you bless it unto the conversion of sinners and to the edification of your people. We pray, Lord, that you would be glorified and that we would be edified. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So having completed our series in Galatians, uh, we now step into a new topical series. And we've done uh, something similar to this back in January of 2020, uh, but we have grown quite a lot since then, and a lot of people missed some of those foundational sermons, and so we thought it would be worthwhile uh, to revisit some of these topics and to add a few new ones. And so for this mini-series, we will aim to address a number of topics from the scriptures, and we begin this morning with the mission of God. Now, my initial plan was actually to begin with a message on how to respond when we find ourselves hated by the culture around us. But I think to really make sense of that message, we first need to back up and look at the context for that conflict, which is really the broader question of what is God doing in the world? Now, a moment's reflection shows how important this question truly is. In order for us to understand our job, our role, our task, what we are here for, we first need to understand the story that we are in. Now, we live in a world where there are many competing stories. In fact, every worldview functions this way. It gives you a, a story of history. If you were to ask a Muslim, for example, uh, what is the story of the world, uh, where things are going, he will give you a very different answer than if you were to ask a Hindu. Similarly, as we bring the gospel into the public square, as we engage with the world around us, we find that our secular culture has its own story as well. They have an idea of what the story of history is and where things are going. That comes through anytime you hear a term like progressive. They have an end goal in mind. Progressing toward what would be the question. Uh, they have the belief that history is progressing to a certain end, and with religious zeal, they are pursuing that goal and opposing any who would stand in the way. And so with all of these competing stories and visions of reality and progress, we ask the question, what is the true story? What story is God telling? What is his mission in this world? And so it is to this question that we turn this morning, and I think for this we need to really start at the beginning. So you can turn with me in your Bibles uh, to the book of Genesis. By looking at God's original design and the original task that he first gave to man, we get a very good picture of what God's purpose for the world truly is. So if you've read the Genesis account, the creation account, we know firstly that God made a good world, and he packed it full of good things. If you read Genesis chapter 1, you hear the pattern repeating through the days of creation. Then God said, then there was, it was good. Then God said, then there was, it was good. Then God creates man and gives him a mission. Let's read from Genesis Chapter 1, verses 26 and 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion 
over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now this word that God uses, that he says, dominion, this word is to rule, to have rulership, or lordship. Now God, of course, is the king, but he makes man, and gives man the task of representative rulership. This is the task of ruling the world in God's stead. And so as part of this charge, man was to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and to subdue it. As Foster and Tennant writes, having gone through the process of creating and ordering the God-sized structures of the world over the first six days, light and dark, land and uh, sea, Yahweh then stops and rests on the seventh. He does not order it down to the nth degree. He does not manicure every tree and shrub. He does not dam any rivers. He builds no houses. He leaves the world untamed and unrestrained and creates just a single garden sanctuary. Then he fashions one last kind of creature, a creature suitable to continue his work, suitable to function as his creative viceroy, suitable to expand his rule across the globe. As God worked in the first week, so Adam will take over from him in the second. Close quote. So we get man's mission in this text, often called the dominion mandate or the cultural mandate. And from this, we can actually glean a lot of what God's original purpose was for the world. We, we get this picture, man and woman as image bearers of God, ruling fruitfully in God's stead, cultivating and subduing the world, filling it with more image bearers. And as they are fruitful and multiply, they would imitate God in bringing order out of chaos, exercising God-glorifying dominion, until the entire earth would be filled and subdued and ordered unto the glory of God. As commentator C. John Collins writes, Mankind's original task was to begin from Eden, work their way outward, and spread the blessings of Eden to all the earth. But as we know, man failed in his task, when the first challenge came into God's garden sanctuary, rather than functioning as a faithful priest and expelling the unclean thing from God's sanctuary, man chose to obey the voice of the serpent rather than the voice of the Creator. As a result, sin entered mankind. God pronounced a curse upon the world, upon the man, the woman, and the serpent. The result of this is that man is now hostile to God and alienated from him. The scripture tells us we are now, by nature, children of wrath, Ephesians 2, verse 3. We are slaves to sin, John 8, 34. <clears throat> and we are under the domain of darkness, Colossians 1, 13. We are rebels. We are sinners. Mankind has failed to fulfill the mission God gave to us. And so all of this raises a question. At the fall, did God then abandon or change his plan? <clears throat> right, we have this glorious picture of a filled and subdued world being ruled and ordered fruitfully by man in communion with God and with one another. And now that man has sinned, everything has been placed under a curse. Right? The world, the systems of unbelief and rebellion, are now under the power of the evil one, such that Colossians 1 says that people are under the domain of darkness. 
kingdom of darkness. Satan's kingdom has gained dominion, rule. Sin entered the world, and death through sin, and the world was languishing under the curse. And so we ask, did God abandon his plan? No. God's purposes will not be thwarted. God's intention for the world will be fulfilled. And the entire Old Testament is essentially the unfolding of this grand plan of redemption. And so we will pick some texts and, and work through the unfolding of God revealing his redemptive purposes. And so let us begin in Genesis 3.15 uh, with what we call the Proto-Evangelium, or the first gospel. So notice here, even as God was pronouncing the curse, he also promised a deliverer. Genesis 3.15, God says to the serpents, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So notice here, a descendant of the woman will come. A deliverer who will crush the head of the serpent, but will be struck himself in the process. The serpent will not have the last word. God will send a deliverer. God would not abandon his creation, but rather his purposes for it will be accomplished. And as we get the first hint from this text, God's purposes will be accomplished through a deliverer. And even before God sent this deliverer, God had prophesied a great deal of who the deliverer would be, what he was going to do, and in the process we will see that God's original plan was not something that he had abandoned. Redemption was coming, and it is to extend to all nations, to all corners of the earth, and the end result will be the fulfillment of God's original purpose. So now, now let's move through a few texts of the Old Testament to see uh, where we see God revealing his purposes for humanity and for the world to show that he never abandoned his plan. So you can turn with me to Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3. For the sake of time, we'll move really quickly here. Genesis 12, 2 and 3, God speaks to Abraham. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. So notice here in the covenant with Abraham, the scope of these promises. Right? What God began with Abraham was not solely focused on Abraham and his offspring. You catch that? From the very first promise that God gave him, it was said that through him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Now, with the benefit of hindsight and further biblical revelation, we know that this was, in fact, a promise of the Messiah. That is, it would be through Abraham's line that the promised serpent crusher would come. You may remember last Advent season, we traced the development of the promises about the Messiah through the Old Testament. You can find that sermon titled Advent Hope on our website. And we saw there that Abraham's line would be the one through which the promised deliverer would come. As we saw in our last series on Galatians, that it was ultimately the gospel of justification by faith alone being preached to the Gentiles that would be the way that the entire world was blessed through Abraham. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. For now, let us just notice the scope of this first promise. We see, even here, in this very first promise to Abraham, we see that God's intention was never just for the physical descendants of Abraham, but rather, from the beginning, God said that he would use him to be a blessing to the nations. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Our next text, Exodus 19, verse 4 and 6, 
Uh, here we have God speaking to Israel at Mount Sinai. This is just before the giving of the Ten Commandments. And God says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now that's interesting. Israel, even here under the Old Covenant, was called to be a kingdom of priests. Now the reason that's so interesting and relevant to our discussion this morning is because of what it means to be a priest. What is a priest? Well, a priest is a mediator. A priest is a go-between. Someone who stands between God and the people. A mediator represents the people to God and represents God to the people. So in Israel's calling to be a kingdom of priests, they were to be a nation that represented God to the rest of the world. To be God's chosen people for this task involved more than only privilege. They bore responsibility. One commentator describes Israel's calling in this way, as the nation that God chose to raise the banner of salvation and justice for all men and all nations, close quote. Now we see this theme continue in the development of the idea of the reign of the Messiah. We know David was king of Israel, a man after God's own heart, and David was promised that one of his descendants would receive an everlasting dominion. We call this the Davidic covenant, or God's covenant with David. This theme then of the Messiah's kingdom further reveals God's redemptive purposes for the world. So let's continue on and look at some texts about the Messiah's reign. Isaiah 2, verse 2. It says this, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, nor shall they learn war anymore. Now Keith Matheson comments on this section saying, The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief mountains during this age, indicating that God will be victorious over all false gods. Number two, he writes, All the nations and many peoples will come to the mountain of the Lord, indicating the fulfilling of God's promise to Abraham to bless all of the families of the earth. As it says, many peoples shall come. As Bodhibakam comments on this passage, these are tribes, languages, kindred, tongues. These are ethnic groups, nations. So the prophets are prophesying that many nations are going to come and be blessed. Close quote. So we see here God reigning as king and his kingdom spreading over the whole earth. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, continuing to unpack this, this theme of the Messiah's kingdom, says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was pre presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So we see here, the Son of Man is given dominion, rulership, lordship, such that all peoples, nations, and languages 
should serve him. Now, does anybody know what was Jesus' favorite title for himself in his earthly ministry? What he referred to himself more than anything else was this, the Son of Man. And that really only appears two places in Scripture. Uh, the first is here, and then the second is all through the book of Ezekiel. Uh, in, in reference to Ezekiel, God refers to him as the Son of Man. Uh, but most commentators believe that this is the text Jesus is drawing from. Right? So Son of Man is a messianic title, uh, referring to he, he as the one who would receive this dominion, this kingdom. And so this is then a prophecy of the Messiah's kingdom. It is to be an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom over all, as all nations, peoples, tribes, and languages are coming to serve the Son of Man. Another text about the Messiah, Isaiah 42, 1-4, God says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Continuing on, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, familiar verse around Christmas time, says, For us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Catch this. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Psalm 110, verse 1, the most quoted verse in the New Testament from the Old the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 22, 27, 28. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Psalm 2, verse 8, which we sung this morning. The Father says to the Messiah, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. Psalm 86, verse 9. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. And Habakkuk 2, verse 14. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. Now, if we could summarize these texts that we've looked at, we would see the prophets declaring that a messianic king will come, an anointed king from the line of David, that he will receive a kingdom, that he will be given the nations as his inheritance, and the result of the Messiah's reign will be blessing to the world. All families of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. His law will go forth and establish justice, but yet this kingdom will not be all uh, will not be established all at once. Rather, we see he will be seated at the right hand of God and will reign there until his enemies have been made his footstool. We see his government and peace will increase. You know, something that would make no sense if he had, had the fullness of the kingdom at the beginning of his reign. And the end result will be that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And what I, I want us to see from all of these texts is that this is essentially the fulfillment of God's original design. A filled and subdued earth. The curse reversed and pushed back through the Son of Man who reclaimed dominion, reconciling sinful man to God and bringing peace through his reign. God did not abandon his original plan, but has prophesied through the Old Testament that he would fulfill his intentions 
and he would do it through his Messiah. This is what we may call the mission of God. And this all raises a question. When is this kingdom to be established? And for this, we have one more Old Testament text. I invite you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, you may remember the story. King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had a dream, and it troubled him. And being the reasonable sort, he commanded all of his wise men to come, and they first had to tell him what his dream was, and then interpret it for him. And obviously none, none of them could do this, but Daniel was found, whom God would grant the interpretation. And so Daniel tells him, you had a vision of a statue with a head of gold, a chest of silver, legs of bronze, and a feet mixed with iron, of iron mixed with clay. And then Daniel says, verse 34, let's read together. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, all together were broken in pieces, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, so that no trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, prophecy is often very difficult to understand, uh, but Scripture uh, fairly frequently gives us the interpretation itself. And this is one of those examples. Uh, Daniel goes on to explain exactly what this dream meant. Let's continue reading. He, he explains to Nebuchadnezzar, you, O king, verse 38, you, O king, are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these and as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. Now catch this. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. So if we follow that, Daniel explains that each section of this idol, the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron and clay, was a different kingdom. And in the days of the fourth kingdom, the kingdom of iron, God would set up and establish an eternal kingdom, an everlasting dominion. So we ask, when will this kingdom be established? Well, for that we need to figure out, what is this fourth kingdom? So Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, the king he is speaking to, the king of Babylon, was the head of gold. After him, the next kingdom, actually recorded for us in the book of Daniel itself, uh, is um, the Medo-Persian Empire. You may remember the story uh, of King Belshazzar, Bel I can't even say that, Belshazzar, uh, who had the writing on the wall uh, where God warned him, you have been weighed, you have measured, you have been found wanting, and that very night he was killed. So that was Nebuchadnezzar's son, who was conquered by King Darius. Another guy we're familiar with. He's the guy who threw Daniel in the lion's den later on. Uh, he was the king of the Medes and the Persians. So 
The second kingdom after the Babylonians was the Medes and the Persians. That's the chest of silver. They would be conquered by another kingdom. This one also prophesied in Daniel, and Daniel 8, verse 20 and 21. The Medes and Persians would be conquered, it says there, by the king of Greece. Uh, he is the goat that charges across uh, and crushes everything in its path. Um, though he's not mentioned by name in Daniel, the king of Greece who conquered the world was Alexander the Great. And so the Greeks then are the third kingdom, the legs of bronze, who would then be conquered by the fourth kingdom. So, which great empire followed after the Greeks? Right? It was the Greeks, which is why everybody spoke Greek at the time of the New Testament. Which empire conquered after the Greeks? paved the whole world, established peace in the world. Well, this was the empire of Rome. The Roman Empire. They are the feet of iron. So catch this then, Daniel 2, verse 44. In the days of those kings, so the kings of the fourth kingdom, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Right? So that kingdom is the rock that was cut by no human hand, struck the idol, and grew into a mountain that filled the earth. So we ask, which great king was born in the days of the Roman Empire, who then established a kingdom that would never be destroyed? This is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, the ruler of the kings of the earth. The angel Gabriel came to the Virgin Mary in the days of Caesar Augustus, king of Rome, and said, Behold, you shall conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus the Messiah, the Anointed One, Son of the Most High God, born of the line of David, promised to receive David's throne as an eternal king, one whose kingdom would have no end. Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the king who came to establish his kingdom, and it was, in fact, established in the days of those kings. The fourth kingdom from Daniel 2, the kingdom of Rome. Now, just as a side point, this is a terrific apologetic argument if you're ever encountering um, uh, somebody who is in the religion of Judaism, for you ask, Where's your Messiah? Right? He was supposed to come in the days of the fourth kingdom down from Nebuchadnezzar in, during the Roman Empire. If the Messiah didn't come then, what are you waiting for? Where, when's he coming then? Right? The timing was there, and the Messiah did, in fact, come. <clears throat> so, Jesus began his ministry, Mark 1, verse 14, proclaiming the gospel the good news of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So when did this kingdom come? Well, the kingdom had come when the king had come. There's a great passage in Matthew chapter 12, and you can turn with me there in your Bibles. Jesus here had been casting out demons, and the Pharisees claimed that it was actually only through Beelzebul, through Satan, the prince of demons, that Jesus was casting out demons. Now Jesus says, uh, a house or a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself, and how then will his kingdom stand? Matthew 12, verse 27, read this with me. Jesus says, And if I cast out demons by the finger, pardon me, by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Now follow what Jesus says here. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God 
has come upon you. If it is by the Spirit of God uh, that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Did Jesus cast out demons through the power of Satan or by the Spirit of the living God? He says then, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Satan had no power to resist Christ in establishing his kingdom. Jesus continues on in verse 29 saying, How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then he may indeed plunder his house. So what is Jesus saying? In that moment, whose house, whose kingdom was under attack? Satan's was. Jesus was in the process of casting out Satan and his angels, plundering his goods. Satan was the strong man who had been metaphorically bound by a stronger man. As Doug Wilson comments on this section, what did Jesus do when he came to this earth? He took the devil's stuff. So from the wilderness temptation through all the rest of the encounters with Satan and his fallen angels, the Lord Jesus Christ was conquering him at every turn. As 1 John 3 verse 8 says, The Son of Man appeared to destroy the works of the devil. And we know that the chief way he came to do this was through his death and resurrection. Hebrews 2 verse 14 says that when Christ took on flesh, he became a human being. He did this so that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is, the devil. The world, though fallen and under the curse of sin, is being redeemed through Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Jesus took the curse upon himself by becoming a curse for us. Galatians 3.13 Jesus came not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. John 3.17 The gospel is the glorious good news that Christ has bought this world with his blood. The gospel is the news of victory that Christ has conquered sin, death, and Satan by becoming the representative of a new humanity whose sins were punished in his flesh as he died on the cross so that they could receive perfect and eternal forgiveness with all the demands of God's justice having been satisfied. The gospel is the message that though we are sinners, Jesus Christ has lived, died, risen, ascended to the right hand of God, and now offers a royal pardon to all who repent of their sin and turn to him in true faith. The power of sin, death, and Satan are broken. And so we now battle a defeated foe. The key battle was fought and won by our great Savior and King over 2,000 years ago when he walked out of the grave. Colossians 2 verse 15 says that God disarmed the rulers and authorities, these demonic forces. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Then, before his ascension, the Lord Jesus Christ gave a mission to his church. And we come now at last to the verse you were probably expecting it when you saw when you preaching on missions. And that is the great commission, Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. You can turn there with me in your Bibles. <clears throat> Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, to the end 
of the age. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Christ's work was done. The power of sin, death, and Satan were broken. Christ's kingdom was inaugurated. And as we saw in Psalm 2, the Father had promised to give the Son the nations as his inheritance. And so the Great Commission is essentially Jesus saying to his church, Go, bring me my inheritance. The ends of the earth are mine. I have bought them with my blood. Now go disciple the nations. Bring this blessing to the ends of the earth, that all the families of the earth would be blessed. Expand my kingdom. 2 Corinthians 5.18 All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. In Christ, God's redemptive purposes come into focus. Christ is the means by which God is reconciling the world to himself. Christ is the means by which all the families of the earth will be blessed. You know, Galatians 3 even says that when God gave that promise to Abraham, he was preaching the gospel to Abraham, saying, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Christ's kingdom does not advance in the way that earthly kingdoms do. As Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And then he explained, John 18, 36, If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered to the Jews. So notice there, Jesus is not saying that his kingdom will have no impact upon the world. Rather, he is saying it will not advance in the way that earthly kingdoms do. If his kingdom were of the world, his servants would have been fighting. But it is not of the world. It does not advance in the way that earthly kingdoms do. And it does not have its authority simply through conquering physically other nations by the sword. Rather, Christ's kingdom advances as disciples are made. His kingdom advances as the Spirit, through the preaching of the gospel, transforms hearts, removing hearts of stone and granting hearts of flesh. Christ's kingdom grows as people are taught all that Christ has commanded of us, and that is the whole counsel of God. Christ's kingdom advances as his people are faithful in the calling to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. His kingdom advances as we have children and raise them in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. Ephesians 6.4, what better opportunity to, to make disciples than these little people who are living in your home for 18 years or more. Christ's kingdom advances as men and women give their lives for the advance of the gospel, for Bible translation, missions, church planting, and evangelism. Christ's kingdom blesses the world as the blessing of Abraham is brought through the nations, to the nations, through the preaching of the gospel, justification by faith alone. And wherever Christ's kingdom takes root, wherever it begins to have influence, it blesses even unbelievers. Because kingdom citizens are the kind of people who love their neighbors, who live according to God's law, who manifest the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, etc. 
Christ's kingdom advances through regeneration. People being transformed by the Spirit, reconciled to God, and made new creatures in Christ. But the kingdom, you've likely noticed, is not something that dropped out of heaven fully formed. Christ declared that the kingdom had come upon the people of his day, and yet even 2,000 years later, when we look around this world, we do not yet see things matching what the prophets said the kingdom would be like. However, this should not surprise us, since this is exactly what the prophets and Jesus himself said would happen. Remember, Scripture teaches that the kingdom of God is something which starts small and grows to fill the earth. Something which starts small and grows to fill the earth. Consider some of the texts that we looked at this morning. Nebuchadnezzar's vision. What was the kingdom? It was the rock, small rock, cut with no human hand, which struck the idol and then grew to become a mountain that filled the earth. Isaiah 9, a son is born, a child is given, and of the increase of his government and of peace, there would be no end. Again, if, it, if you receive the kingdom fully formed, then what is the language of increase? Isaiah 9, a son, pardon me, I just read that, Psalm 110, verse 1, sit at my right hand until your enemies are made your footstool. And so at the time that he sits down, there are still many enemies yet to be conquered. And consider Christ's own teaching about the nature of the kingdom. Matthew 13, 31. You can turn with me there in your Bibles. Matthew 13, 31. And he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come to nest in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. This is the kingdom. It is not of the world. It does not advance through military force. It does not drop out of heaven fully formed. It is small, but it grows to fill the whole earth. It is the smallest of seeds, but becomes the largest plant in the garden. It is leaven working its way through the loaf until it is all leavened. It is Christ reigning at the right hand of the Father until all his enemies have been made his footstool. Hebrews 10, 12-13. Notice when Christ began that reign. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. This is the story we are in. The kingdom has been inaugurated, but it has not yet been consummated. It has begun, but it has not yet been completed. Christ is reigning, but there are many enemies yet to be made his footstool. And so until that day, we, the church, those who have been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation, have great work to do. Jesus Christ has more sheep that are not yet in this fold. We are tasked to go and bring them in. We have the duty of publishing the good news of the gospel as we go to whatever God has called us to. We do so as ambassadors for Christ. And so we exercise faithful dominion in everything. 
Order your homes, your marriages, your businesses, and your lives in a way that glorifies God. We, the people of God, are a royal priesthood, a chosen race, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. And so until Christ comes, as our membership statement of faith puts it, we are to be busy doing the work of evangelism and discipleship, proclaiming the pure, uncompromised gospel of Christ by teaching the word of God. Close quote. We are to disciple the nations, to teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded, to call all people everywhere to repent. And this means that we will aim to be a sending church. It is not our goal to become ingrown or to have all of our attention and energy focused simply on building up ourselves as an end in itself, but rather we aim to be a church that plants churches. We aim to make disciples who will make disciples. Our ultimate aim and goal is the mission of God in the world, to see the world reconciled to him. To see the nations converted, to see all families of the earth blessed through Christ, to see the earth as full of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. As Christ taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So this is our task. This is what God is up to in the world. The story of history is a story of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. It is God's grand story of redemption. As we've seen, God never abandoned his original purpose for the world. But as the author of history, he is guiding all things to the glorious conclusion that he has intended from eternity past. And as his covenant people, we have the great privilege of participating in his work redeeming the world. This is the mission of God. I'll leave you this morning with Romans 16, 19 and 20. But I want you to be as wise, to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you.